Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to be speaking with Emily de la Bruyere here at George Mason University. She's a co-founder of Horizon Advisory, a geopolitical consultancy, and a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. She's frequently cited on China and industrial matters, and she has brought some excellent voices together on these topics in a new publication called Force Distance Times. Emily, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, let's jump right into it. It seems like the mainstream DC policy view on China has really become a lot more hawkish over the past decade. What examples would you give to symbolize that shift, or is that a correct characterization? Oh, I think it's absolutely a correct characterization. There's been a stark change in sentiment regarding China over, yeah, as you said, over really the past decade. 10 years ago, the orthodoxy was still engagement at all costs. And it was pretty fringe or out there to talk about great power competition. If I said competition with China, maybe you would get South China Sea as a reference, but that was niche and fringe and that was really about all you got. And now, I mean, it's widely accepted. It's both sides of the aisle. It's people in the security community, outside of the security community, who recognize what's been true for well over a decade, which is that we are locked in a competition with China. I do think, though, that there's a parallel and perhaps even bigger change happening right now. And it's not the question of, is there a competition or is there not a competition? It's what is the contest? There's a growing recognition, probably a couple of years old in Washington, that China competes differently than other countries have. That China is turning the economic and the industrial domains into battlegrounds. That it's not just about it being the competition, is not just about militarizing the South China Sea or overseas basing or aircraft carriers. And with that recognition about China's economic and industrial warfare is, I think, coming a parallel larger sentiment shift and one regarding the U.S. and industry and what matters and the reality that if the U.S. is going to be in a competition with an adversary in today's environment, it has to have an industrial base. And the wealth and power growth on paper that's happened over the past decades as the U.S. has moved manufacturing elsewhere might actually undermine our ability to compete that we're not going to be able to beat China if what we were just talking about, if our jets rely on inputs from Beijing, or if we're not going to be able to compete for next generation technology if we can't build that here. So it's a little aside of the question, but I think there, it, there are two waves of sentiment change. The second one is like happening as we speak, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they overlap. Within the DC people that I've talked to, they're always like, the common phrase I always hear is, China's not 10 feet tall, like we shouldn't make them 10 feet tall. And it seems like the narrative also has shifted very recently, especially in the post-COVID years with, okay, you got the lockdowns, the real estate bubble, the demographic challenges in China, you know, they're putting like Jack Ma and like was getting disappeared and this kind of stuff. 
And everyone's kind of now, it's popular to say we reach peak China, it seems. Like the hype is kind of as far as it can go. And now it's like, oh, if they're declining, are they even more dangerous? Is that kind of fair? Is, is that kind of the state of what people are thinking? And is that the right way to think about this? I think it's really dangerous to underestimate your enemy. I also think that it's worth noting that a lot of the negative realities emerging in China are functions of Beijing asserting its control. And that's true whether it's COVID lockdowns, the tech lash, anything else regarding tech transfer or consolidation. And that's not an accident. In, a lar- in large part, that's motivated by the Chinese government thinking it's able to do that, that this is an opportune moment, that it's strong enough that it can assert control. So I don't think we, I do not feel comfortable mirror imaging the weaknesses in China's economy, what they would mean in ours, and then deciding from that Beijing is falling apart and weak and either to be worried about only because its collapse would affect the global system or not to be about at all. The flip side is that there are certainly, as a function of today's environment, realities and negative realities of doing business in China and exposure to China that are becoming evident and that could prompt a kind of sea change in how the private sector sees the country that would be very good for the American competitive posture and for norms markets more broadly. So you're saying that we should still we shouldn't assume like all these troubles with China are going to be like something bigger that will impact its kind of strategic ambitions, right? It seems like they've had some of these things like the Belt and Road Initiative. Was that a capital misallocation? Like how long can they go on with these capital misallocations before something goes wrong? Or are these not really capital misallocations? Because we keep seeing these ghost cities and it just signifies to me Like, okay, they still have some of these elements of central state planning. I think that's like weighing down and is it going in the wrong direction? If the liberalization period is over, what does that signal for them? I think that we have said over, we, the U.S. community or international analytical community has said over and over, over the past decade or decade plus, China is being inefficient in its allocation of resources. This is something it can't afford. Look at these ghost cities. Look at the Belt and Road. And we've said that, and we said China's going to fail. This isn't going to work. And what's happened? China has gotten more powerful. And partly, I think that's maybe misunderstanding what China's trying to accomplish. It's also partly that the way Beijing deploys its industrial and its strategic posture is that it incentivizes companies, whether those are private sector or state-owned, to invest a certain way. And they're non-market incentives because Beijing sees those investments as good for its overall strategy. And that can produce a whole lot of duplication. It can produce redundancies. It absolutely produces inefficiencies. It's throwing paint at the wall. And we are inclined to look at the failures and say that means this approach doesn't work. But there are a lot, the overall trend line is one of success because you know, that paint is going to hit the target, to mix my metaphors, enough times. Yes, ones will miss. But what you really need to look at is, are things moving in a direction where China is getting positions in the international environment that it wants? And it seems to have been doing so. Yeah, and it also seems that they can just put out lots of physical products, which actually really matters in the context of a military thing. So that's the kind of most scary part of that. Absolutely. And like they have huge industrial redundancy in terms of capacity that if we entered a conflict, that's huge. We don't have that. They also have secured massive leverage in our supply chains that gives them potentially coercive power, also in the case of a conflict or just in non-conflict but competitive dynamics. Yeah, I saw something. Their shipyards are huge, and they're taking a bunch of, I guess, of the capacity away from the Japans and the South Koreas. And it seems like, and there's all these projections going on about what does that mean for their military force structure in terms of ships? 
And they were saying it was only going to be like the these American analysts, of course, but they're saying, oh, we expect 420 ships or something by the 2030s relative to the mid-300s today. And I was like, that just doesn't seem right. It seems if China wants to put out that many ships into the sea, like we can talk about capital misallocation, but they can just get ships out there. Yeah, exactly. And we can't necessarily. And I want to talk a little bit about potentially why, because I was actually watching this interesting documentary on like the, a Chinese factory city. It was a little bit dated, but one of the things that they were stressing there was that they were building all the components and like even like down to the raw stuff. It was built on the same campus and it was all vertically integrated. Is that a common thing in China compared to the U.S.? You talked about financialization. We have these really expanded supply chains that can minimize costs or whatever. But it seems like China's taking a different vertical integration route. How would you characterize that? I'm so glad you raised this. This is one of my favorite points. The short answer is yes, 100%. China's industrial policy, industrial structure, industrial investments, they absolutely hinge on vertical integration. Whether that's with industry parks like you just raised or with conglomerates just actually being themselves vertically integrated, or in terms of if you look at an investment vehicle's portfolios, you see it across the board. This is really key to China's approach, and it accomplishes a lot of things. If you look at Chinese discourse on developing indigenous production capacity and avoiding reliance on the rest of the, on the international system, that's where you see a lot of discussion about vertical integration. Because if they have an entire value chain, then there aren't going to be parts in it that depend on technologies or products from elsewhere. This also simplifies the process of technology acquisition or partnerships in a lot of ways, including through circumvention of existing regulatory regimes. If you look at the U.S. system, we, in this like very whack-a-mole way, ding certain Chinese actors as bad actors, putting them on the entity list or sanctioning them or what have you. If, however, China has an industry park where you have all of the players that together are going to create a given system, that industry park can have a bad actor player, like a entity-listed player, and a non-entity-listed player, the non-entity-listed player, like they're all going to be cooperating in the same value chain, but any one of the ones that's not dinged by U.S. regulations can go out and partner with whomever. So it, it creates this like many-headed Chinese system that's able to integrate into the international system and then have robust, resilient at home. And so overall, it's there are two, I think, important conclusions that we risk missing by not taking into account this vertical integration. One is relative strengths and weaknesses of the systems. As you hinted, China's optimizing for being able to compete with industry. We're optimizing for quarterly returns. A vertically integrated system isn't necessarily going to make you the most money in the short term, but it is what lets you have your own industrial base and asymmetric leverage over another players. And the other beat is how we think about defensive measures. If we're going to play a whack-a-mole game in terms of investment screening, tech export restrictions, then we also need to account for the reality that all of these players in China are working together in a whole industrial ecosystem. The video was funny because this guy had a, like a production problem. He's like, we're missing this component. And then what did he do? He like got on a bicycle. It just went to the next building. And it was just like looking through stuff and pulled out a bag. And I was just like, that was, that's very different than what I imagine a supply chain problem looks like in the U.S. Absolutely. And then when a supply chain problem hits, like we have to deal with people thousands of miles away and we might never get it. It's not the most advanced way. It's certainly not what like your normal business model tells you to do, but it's robust. Yeah, it seems like you're paying potentially in some kind of 
there might be some inefficiency notions, but you're like paying for that in terms of getting reliability and resiliency and the ability, again, to be able to dictate potentially supplier negotiations in some respects. Exactly. But you're starting to see in, in the US, like SpaceX and these types of new aerospace companies, they're, a lot of them are vertically integrating. I think there's also when something is mundane and it's been around a while, it seems like you get a lengthening, a roundaboutness of that capital, whereas like when something's new, it's like integral to the build process, they bring it in-house. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I also wonder whether recent trends are just pushing generally in this direction and newer players are more flexible in their business models. So have logistics snafus, have COVID, like encourage players who are just stepping up to put their emphasis in new places or think about new business models. The whole thing is pretty interesting, I think, in term, when you like bring it back to an industrial mobilization thing, right? When we think about existential threats to the United States and our like way of life, I guess you could say pandemics are one of them, but you know, like you can go down the list of certain things. But warfare is definitely one of them. The way our systems are structured, one seems much more like tightly coupled and responsive to being able to scale up and just get physical things out that need to blow up, whereas the U.S. system might not be. So how do you think about this? If we need to go to war, let's just say there's a major war within a couple year time frame. Like, what does industrial mobilization look like in each of these countries? Obviously, I'm a total pessimist based on everything I've already said, but I think we're a lot weaker than we think in terms of industrial mobilization. The thing, the line you hear again and again is, remember what the U.S. did in World War II. We turned on a dime. We were able to just go into a wartime productive mode. And of course, we can do that today. And the first question is, I'm now going to just hit on beats we've already talked about, but can we? There's been so much offshoring. There's been such a hollowing out of our industrial capacity. I'm not sure we have that general foundation that we can then scale up on. Whereas China, as we already discussed, they have overcapacity. They have everything in place to just start pumping out more. And then the other B is just the asymmetric dependence. China has been investing very deliberately over recent decades to ensure that it depends less on inputs from the U.S. than the U.S. depends on inputs from China. And if push comes to shove, we can't make very much. And we can make, I think, a lot less than we think without supply inputs from China. And that is going to create a really difficult dynamic if we ever enter into a war with them. Yeah, there was just some consternation recently. The chief of naval operations was like, I don't think we can get to three destroyers a year or like somewhere between two and two and a half. And it's just, wow. We also saw recently that the F-35 halted deliveries for a time because they found out and it was discovered that there was some alloy way down that was creating a magnet in the supplier tiers. How important is this? Is this like a big deal? Or do you think that, oh, that's just like a small thing. They found it. It's anomalous. Or what's your general take on it? Oh, I, I, that's a big deal. It's a big deal for, I guess, two reasons. One is the specific case. Yeah, we can't have critical inputs, especially ones that are difficult to produce elsewhere in our military equipment that depend on China, pure and simple. China has a history of using chain dependencies to coerce other states. Like We know that they'll use this leverage if they have to and can. But the other beat is that's not anomalous. And the lack of information on it isn't anomalous either. Value chains, including defense value chains today, are convoluted. There are major dependencies on China. There are a lot that aren't known. And this isn't just a problem of the F-35. It's a problem is pervasive across the U.S. industrial base, therefore pervasive across the U.S. defense industrial base, especially because of growing dual-use crossover. And honestly, it's probably more pervasive across 
like allied and partnered um, inputs into our defense industrial base. So we we hear a ton of stuff like the uh, buy American and banning things like Huawei or buying stuff from DJI for the drones. But I actually hear like a lot of places are still, they're still buying DJI, not just in the local like police forces, but also in certain military aspects. How important are these things? Can we just ban it? Just to say, is it that easy? Oh, we can't have that in the supply chain. We should be able to, but the issue is that we don't have the alternatives in a lot of cases. That's one of the big, they're probably three big problems with Buy American and then with bands like that. One is enforcement and just general supply chain transparency. The other is waivers. There are so many waivers. And the third thing is just limited scope. Like it's not just a military supplier issue. It's also a commercial supplier issue and there's overlap. Underlying all of these is the reality that we don't necessarily have alternatives to a lot of the products that we know we depend on China for and where we shouldn't depend on China. And DJI is a great example. I don't remember offhand the percent of the value chain that's controlled by them, but it's 90 plus percent, I think. Don't cite me on that one. You mean for their own drones or for... Yeah, like small commercial drones. And that situation gets even worse as you work your way up the value chain. Like what about IoT modules, not just Huawei? Chinese companies dominate in IoT modules. What about when you look at all the way up at like the critical minerals going into these things? So how are we supposed to enforce these bans if we're not also investing in alternatives? So let's just say we had the CHIPS Act, right? It was like 52 billion. They claim it's landmark, but I'm not really sure how big that really is in most people's view. Let's just say, let's just 10X it. Let's say you have $500 billion and you can strategically invest it yourself somewhere in the United States. And you could put it to something like minerals and metals, that kind of stuff, or semiconductor manufacturing. What would you pick? Or would you pick something else? Minerals and metals. Every time. Easy. No question. How much does it matter if we have domestic capacity at the middle or the downstream of a value chain if all of that requires inputs from elsewhere? Like, I don't think that's industrial security. China doesn't think that's industrial security. There's this line that Xi Jinping cites frequently, translates roughly to not being able to build on someone else's foundation. And that's used in like a supply chain context of they have to have capacity and build their way up the value chain because that's security. Otherwise, you're a shaky foundation. It belongs to somebody else. The rug can get pulled out from under you. And I think that's one of the big problems with the CHIPS Act is that it's very downstream focused. I think, at least in the Department of Defense, the way that budget policy is like industrial policy, right? It's like, you just say, I need this many F-35s, and then the supply chain works itself out magically, right? Like, the contractors put their proposals together. So it's like, when you say the thing, I guess a lot of people would be like, focus on the outcome, and then the rest of it will work its way out back to the inputs, rather than focus on the inputs. Now, I think you would probably push back on that. Because the rest of the way it's going to work itself the way it has, which is without domestic capacity. If we said we're only going to give money to semiconductor production downstream where all of the inputs are trusted by made by trusted players and we enforce that, yeah, sure, then the process would work itself out the right way. Otherwise, what we risk doing is giving a whole lot of money to companies that are making semiconductors with inputs that are from China and also that have massive footprints in China. Does the U.S. just have to like, whenever they create some of these, maybe like environmental or other types of regulatory things, do they also have to subsidize these companies if it's like a national strategic, like for these critical minerals, right? You can, basically what they're going to, you're saying is we have to subsidize them because it's too expensive to do it here. Now, 
it doesn't, I'm not saying that the environmental thing is the reason there could be other reasons, but is that just like a, are we calling for a national subsidy and what's like the least harmful way to, to create a subsidy like that? It's a combination of imposing costs on buying from adversarial players, providing incentives to produce domestically. That doesn't have to be subsidies. It can be tax credits. Also, we can also produce among trusted players, like work with our allies where they have cost advantages. On the environmental front, it's so frustrating because we, a lot of the reason we don't produce upstream in the U.S. is because of environmental regulations. But what that means is that we end up sourcing from China. It's dirtier. <laughs> it's so much dirtier. Exactly. And it's just like we're just outsourcing or offshoring all of our environmental concerns. That's insane. Yeah, I remember I was like traveling in Germany and I was just at a table, like a hostel table. And there was like a really young kid. Basically, he must have been like 19. And he was like rallying thousands of people to go like protest a nuclear power plant. They're like, we need to take it offline. And I look back on that now. I'm just like, I wonder if he knew he was being played. And like now Germany's in a really terrible strategic place. Exactly. A terrible strategic place and also like dirtier energy. Yeah, you're getting, you're still getting the same, right? Like the alternative wasn't there, but they're like prematurely shutting that. So there's the same thing going on in California, I guess, with that nuclear power plant. Is your view like we got to keep all energy production going for now and, but still move towards renewable energies at the same time? Yes. And also move toward, if we're going to move toward renewable energies, let's do so while having security in our renewable energy value chains. Let's not rely entirely on polysilicon from China for our solar panels or Chinese batteries for our electric vehicles. If we care about energy security, which, hey, we just had a huge wake-up call, we really should. Let's do this in a way so that we're not only advancing environmental agenda policies, but also security ones. How about in the, uh, I guess, the more the social space, like, why is TikTok still not getting a heavier hand from Washington? Is this indicative of anything or... What's going on with that? It's moderately insane, right? Like the fact that TikTok exists, that information is going to Chinese players. ByteDance has all sorts of cooperative agreements with the Chinese government. I think it's probably partly no one has the guts to do anything about it because there would be huge public backlash, which is precisely the problem and speaks to how ingrained this thing, which is a massive social and security threat, is in our system. I also think part of it is that there's a lack of clarity on what tools to use. Do you just ban the company and say it can't operate here? If so, how do you do that? Is that what India did? They, didn't they just put it like on a blacklist and it was just like, that, that's that? <laughs> Can we do that? I think that it shouldn't be that difficult, right? But it requires a certain amount of like creativity and resolve that... Yeah. I love our American free system. So this is one of my questions, too, because of like the whole idea of industrial policy for me. And I think a lot of economists, it's like a naughty word, right? Like we're almost saying that we know better than the market and we know how to, even though we're not in charge or not responsible or have any of the incentives or outcomes, like we're going to direct capital allocations. But there, there's some kind of like logical need for it as well in terms of national security and other reasons. So... How do you define industrial policy itself and when is it actually okay to be used? It means different things in different systems. I think that there's a gut reaction here to say, okay, we're finally getting on board with industrial policy. Industrial policy means here what it means in China, which is needless to say, very hands-on. And that's just not the case. That's not how the US system works. That's not going to be successful here. 
what it really is or should be is the U.S. government creating the regulatory environment such that the private sector is incentivized to invest in strategic industrial capacity, both at home and with trusted partners, and then disincentivized to rely on adversaries for that. It's government shaping a rule set incentive system for the private sector to do its thing and do its thing in the right way. And that's not, I don't think, the U.S. doling out tens of billions of dollars to one specific industry and a couple specific nodes within that industry and saying, okay, we did it, we've solved it. How many years did the CHIPS Act take? A lot of questions as to whether it would pass. How many other, how many nodes in that industry did it not acknowledge? How many other industries matter? But what it could be just very broadly is some set of imposing costs for reliance where there shouldn't be reliance providing incentives, whether those are tax credits or other things for domestic production. And then when it comes to like government purchasing, you can be a little more hands-on. In the CHIPS Act, did they just, I wasn't really too clear on that. Did they just pick some champions and choose and provide them money or? So I think right now, as we're talking, I don't believe the money has been allocated to like players, but what is in the bill is like what stages of the value chain it will go to approximately, roughly. Got it. I hope uh, that's right, <laughs> what I just said. But we can, uh, can fact check that one. Yeah, it's funny. In, in Department of Defense, industrial policy did get raised up a little bit. I think it, it was like a deputy assistant secretary, DASD kind of thing. And then it became an assistant secretary of defense. But again, it's like what we buy is our industrial policy. There's like all the like shortfalls in industrial capacity or ability to do maintenance and organic industrial based stuff. But those aren't really the, the programs. The programs are like, I'm going to buy a B-21. I'm going to buy a carrier. I'm going to buy all this other stuff. Should inputs be like strategic outcomes in of themselves? Should I just say, look, I'm not going to say like it has to go to a B-21 or it has to go to the Starbucks down the street, but I'm going to need this type of material. <laughs> so I know I should have a capacity that just runs on its own that just provides this thing. Probably, yes. And like that's what, in theory, like critical mineral stockpiling is about, right? Or incentives is that here are inputs that are strategic and we need them and we need to have consistent supply of them. So the government's going to purchase. And yeah, that's probably like, I mean, there's probably a broadening of that could and should happen, but also just like more emphasis on inputs in government procurement. I also like to think about like just flipping it around. We're somewhat reliant on China in many respects. And I think that's pretty well publicized, but we don't hear too much about how China might actually be reliant on the West. And I think the lithography machines is like an obvious example. But I just heard actually like, you know, the Chinese are dependent kind of on the U.S. for boron because <laughs> they're thinking about making so like boron powered weapons and stuff like that. Is this actually like from a Chinese perspective, you say they're thinking about it much more closely than us, but is it still a concern from them? Like more than we here might think it is? Yes. And I think it's like you just the two main dependencies are precisely what you just laid out one is i think or that you see talked about in chinese discourse one is the upstream inputs and there are a set of upstream inputs i'm not going to try to rattle them off but they exist that in if you look at chinese industrial policy are acknowledged as big dependencies and big dependencies on the u.s and the other is advanced technology the issue though is that the u.s has not figured out how to actually use control over inputs, like critical material inputs, um, to claim leverage over China the same way China does to us, which is partly a function of us, the government just not controlling the private sector here the way it's controlled in China, and maybe not knowing where those dependencies are. And then on the technology front, we could talk about 
that for hours. There are just so many loopholes in existing U.S. restrictions on Chinese tech access that, yes, they're still behind us in a lot of these things, but generally we're not as far ahead as we think because of the degree to which Beijing is able to access advanced technologies in the U.S. and internationally, because even our backward system here or insufficient system here is way better than the system in Europe for example. And as Chinese players see that it's harder to access advanced technology here, they just, they're going to shift their focus to Europe. Yeah, it seems like Europe particularly doesn't really take this seriously. And you've pointed to Airbus, for example, you said like 20% of their sales are from China, and they've actually been transferring like willingly tons of aerospace technology to China. And it's no, it's no secret that the Chinese have been trying to build like their indigenous kind of like aircraft capabilities for a while struggling, but looks like they're starting to make headway. So can you talk a little bit about this and how bad is this practice in Europe versus American companies? So it's bad everywhere. It's particularly bad with European versus U.S. companies. And yeah, I go back over and over to the Airbus case because I do just think it makes that very clear. Airbus's exposures to the Chinese system are glaring, and they're glaring even relative to counterparts in the U.S. They have extensive partnerships to the tune of like multiple joint ventures, but also a literal investment tie-in with AVIC, which is China's state-owned aerospace defense conglomerate, identified by DOD as a Chinese military company. Airbus also has advanced innovation hubs in China. Literal innovation centers, actually, this is fun. I did work, like I wrote a report on this subject and literally the day after that report came out, they announced a new innovation center in China. So they have tons of these? There are two of them now, two innovation centers and then other like labs and or joint labs and R&D partnerships. But do they have firewalls? with? Because Airbus is also a military contractor. Do they have yeah. firewalls or do we not really know? We don't really know. And then they also have crazy supply chain dependencies. There are multiple Chinese like EVIC owned players that are sole or pretty much sole suppliers within the Airbus value or supply chain. And like this like, it's not a great situation. It's bad for Europe, obviously. And it's also bad for the U.S. This means that advanced technology risks going to China because there's no question that China is trying to take advantage of this and for defense relevant purposes. And it also means that to the extent that Airbus is in our industrial and defense industrial base, there are supply chain dependencies there that could be really dangerous. Um, we briefly touched. I think Airbus is competing for the for a tanker. And yeah, them and Lockheed are exactly okay. So them and Lockheed, and so if Lockheed's already getting pushed back or not, they're not DoD isn't accepting deliveries for the F thirty five for the magnets. Like, what does that mean for whatever? And Airbus exposure is so much greater. Yeah, Yeah, it's so this particular case, it seems like a huge risk and one that's particularly threatening because. The U.S. needs Europe. Like, we need to be allies. And Airbus within its industry is clearly a unique case because there aren't very many players in this industry. It's more broadly an issue with the European defense industrial base and industrial base and then its interaction with the U.S. And I think another point that kind of underlines the difference between Europe and the U.S. on this is, so there's a big arms sale to Taiwan that was recently announced. And that includes, like, hundreds of millions of dollars of Raytheon missiles and also Boeing missiles. And because of that, they're getting sanctioned by China, which was just announced at the end of last week. If they're willing to be in this deal, it's okay. They're willing to push back against the Chinese system because they probably know they're going to get sanctioned. It's not the first. It's not the first time Beijing's done this, which seems positive in terms of some resolve from the defense industrial base to actually defend the U.S. and defend democracy. But then you get these loopholes, 
which seemed not awesome. It's interesting to me. What does the sanction, like China sanctioning like a Boeing actually mean? Because it seems like they would actually want their firms to get even deeper into those supply chains so that they, they, you're even more dependent and they can turn that off and it's like a big threat and something they can really have leverage over. Is their version of sanctioning actually like, no, you can't do business with our companies? Wouldn't we love that? Wouldn't like the U.S. Oh, we, government we be like, everyone should be sanctioned, <laughs> get yes. sanctioned now? It's interesting because they actually, they sanctioned the CEOs, not the companies themselves, uh, which it might be just a way to signal to the domestic population that they're doing something without actually doing something. It might also be one of the ways I read it is that China thinks that if it imposes punitive measures on the U.S. private sector for Washington's competition with China, then the U.S. private sector will pressure Washington not to compete with China. So I think it might be something that's like kind of toothless in that capacity, but they're trying to use to then take advantage of the company's political influence. Do we know for the 787, let's say from Boeing, do we know, is that like highly dependent on China in the same way like an Airbus vehicle might or different? So I've looked at this. I wish I had like actually the details top of mind. It's not, the degree is very different. And it's interesting because like Boeing has had a presence in China historically, and then has, like right now they're working on diverting sales of 737s that were meant for the Chinese market to other players, like they're moving away. And with that has come more diversification in their supply chain. And I think like you don't see the same, the thing that's really characteristic of the Airbus story is like one supplier, one Chinese supplier for a product and like no other alternatives. And that seems pretty unique to them. Why are companies turning around on China a little bit? I see like Tesla's in there and a lot of other companies as well, but I'm just like, is Tesla even profitable in China? Are they like just expecting, hey, maybe I'm gonna get some, there's gonna be hockey stick growth and I'm just gonna capture just a small percentage of this market, but it's gonna be huge. Is that Has that actually happened anywhere yet? Or are these firms like still in the investment and hope stage? Tesla just had record sales in the last quarter in China. And I think that they depend on 20 plus percent of their revenue comes from China. Oh, wow. And they have major production in China. So in the short term, I think they actually are making money off of this. However, the issue for them is that's probably not going to last because China has a set of domestic champions that are designed to capture the electric vehicle industry, including BYD is probably the obvious ones. And effectively, China is taking advantage of Tesla to develop its domestic champions. So it's probably more whatever reverse hockey stick growth is that Tesla can probably make some money now out of China. And that's not going to be the case in a decade. Wow. So what do you, what are you thinking there? They're inviting Tesla so that they can get the workforce and knowledge base and just start seeding that market. But really that's going to, that competition will help their companies grow. And then you're just going to turn that, that off at some point. Yeah. That, and then literal technology access. And always strikes me is they're going to make these big investments in China that they might not make in the United States. And then it's like, there's a huge, even if you're making quarterly profits, like Tesla it's going to have to be many years before you make an ROI on all that investment. And I think right before World War II, there's GM and Ford and General Electric. They were all investing in Germany itself, in their industry. And then eventually just got snatched and converted to war production. And that was just like a huge pretty much lost, but also just like a slap in the face to America and national security. I'm sure everyone's thinking about that. Is, is that like a big risk you think people are thinking or like worried about there? Oh, I think it's absolutely a big risk. Yes. So like first answer is yes. And then the next answer is and if the, even if there's not a war, right, this 
capacity is likely just going to get converted for China's domestic champions. Beijing isn't letting major international and especially U.S. companies have businesses in China because it believes in free markets or out of the goodness of its own heart. Beijing is doing this because that gives it access to their technology, their expertise, and their influence internationally. And ultimately, China wants its champions to take over those markets. So yes, there's like absolutely wartime mobilization possibility, but there's also simply that like those Tesla factories, they become BYD factories. Like same goes for any other Chinese player versus any other international champion right now that's there. Yeah, you just like sanction or do so many things. You're going to have to sell this at a fire sale price. Yeah. We don't even, we're not going to like literally take it over, but basically just make your life so hard. Exactly. And like, hell, if you can put Jack Ma and disappear Jack Ma, <laughs> you can take over Tesla's factory. Yeah. It was funny. I was watching, it was some documentary and they were just like interviewing some like German World War II guy in the production base. And he was like, the German war machine ran on General Motors Opel trucks. <laughs> I was just like, oh man. Yeah. And like, the Chinese war machine is in operation because it's a war machine that operates in peacetime and wartime. And yeah, it's on U.S. technology and resources. So what's the state of people's perception of the Taiwan thing? Is everyone's just like the Pete Davidson window by 2027? Is that pretty much like, why is that such a consensus? Is that actually like a reasonable consensus to have? Or do you think that there's a lot more different views out there and it's really pretty murky as to what might happen? I think it's murkier. I think particularly because there's a lot of incentive for China to stay sub-threshold and to use economic pressure and to use political pressure and play this out more in a Hong Kong type way, precisely because it wouldn't really trigger a reaction. Taiwan is already pretty captive economically, narratively, financially to China. There's a way to play this game where China never has to invade and where it's more of a slow creep that then becomes, could even be a, like, political takeover or a like in Hong Kong more like police force type takeover and I think that needs to be part of the conversation because it changes how the U.S. can defend Taiwan it's one thing if Beijing is absolutely going to send amphibious vehicles right and then you want certain kind of defenses but if China is going to conduct an economic takeover then the important thing is like protecting Taiwan economically like encouraging it to diversify its economy cutting the degree of reliance on China so what's a specific example of what China would do in that scenario to just stranglehold Taiwan? What does that look like? It depends a lot on the time frame, right? But right now, if you think about it, pretty much anybody who's making any money in Taiwan is doing so because of the Chinese market. And that's true of old people. And it's true of young people. If you're young in Taiwan and you're not, and you were very successful in school and you're not going to go work at TSMC, you're probably going to go to China to work. And so there's a lot of, like, the first step is just this elite capture and affecting sentiment. And then you get you get a kind of mission creep, right? Like, then you can force political changes. You can force government system changes. The national security community can change its mind about things. There are just so many gray zones in the state between Taiwan as an independent democracy, Taiwan as a captive vessel to Beijing, and then Taiwan as a part of China. And you can cross those stages I think in a lot of, especially if it's a slow creep over time, in a lot of steps that do not involve missiles. Still, it's a little less scary from an overall perspective. But 
it, but some people have been saying that at least the younger generations in Taiwan are more fiercely like nationalistic about Taiwan and feel like they are Taiwanese. Is that like working against that slower narrative? Or are these people act, like the elite of this group actually captured? And so that's their infiltration. Yeah. And I wonder about that. Narrative. Like, clearly, like there's an extent to which that's very true, right? Saying one is president, which says a lot, but the elite of the group, I think, is the question. And who ends up then having power in 10 years or being the influential voices in 10 years? And I think perhaps because I'm a pessimist here, I am wary of just relying on the narrative of the youth want democracy and so democracy will remain. Potentially, what if Taiwan just decides we have changed the narrative and we're just like, we are decoupling and we are going to entrench ourselves with the West or something like that? Wouldn't that be the worst outcome? Because now they're like, China might just be like, all right, let's move up our timetables if that window is closing on us. Or is that just not a reasonable thing to... It would be a risky bet. It's possible that there's a limited window of time in which to do that. And Beijing wouldn't be comfortable actually like responding militarily now. I don't know. Why is Beijing targeting like 20... I think it's 2045 to be like a world-class military. That just seems really far away. Like world-class, like how hard is it to be world-class? They're probably world-class right now, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like all of these are the old timetables that are like the nice round numbers, but also it sounds a lot better to realize that you beat your expectations than that you were right on or behind them. It seems like everybody in D.C., like no one's really shy about saying, in these war games, we tend to lose, right? Shouldn't you take off near peer? If that's the case, then oh, it's shouldn't peer, near right? be taken off of yeah. that? Absolutely. But also, that's probably part of the logic, too. If China says we're only going to be a world-class military by 2045, then they get to maintain like the hide-and-bide narrative, even while they're being more aggressive on the international scene. You keep assuring the U.S. that you don't have a military. And then, oh, wait, surprise, you do. So I want to like shift gears a little bit and talk about your uh, new publication that you and some others have put out, and it's called Force Distance Times. So what is this, and what are you trying to accomplish there? Forces Since Times is an online magazine I've recently launched, and the idea is to circulate solutions-focused commentary about American competitiveness in a new industrial era. So the idea is a positive narrative. We don't want to just be yelling about problems, and we start from the thesis that production is power. And then the other thing we try to do is serve as a gathering place for new perspectives and insight on a broad range of themes that all relate to industry, but that otherwise aren't necessarily brought together, whether that's technology or geopolitics or manufacturing or finance. Where's the publication that has a piece from a scientist on a new development in critical mineral refining, but also a piece from a venture capitalist and one from a former investment banker about how the U.S. can move into smarter investment models? That's the hole we're trying to fill. And we're also trying to do so, again, as like a positive narrative, because there's so much, and I'm guilty of this, you've just heard me talk on this, about the problems the U.S. faces, and so little about how we can actually fix them and compete and win geopolitically, but also socially and economically. Are there any kinds of North Stars or guiding themes does like the whole publication have a general trajectory or is it just individual authors whatever they think is important i mean we have editorial staff editorial that we run that probably does have a consistent theme not unlike a lot of what we've talked about right now what is american industrial policy how can it be successful how does it differ from the model that's in the conventional narrative about it and then smaller much smaller areas 
within that, but we also, we want to have a diverse group of contributors. First of all, this is a plug for contributions. We're always looking for those. We welcome them. The reason we want a diverse group of contributors and outside contributors in general is because other people have things to contribute to the conversation that I sure as hell don't know about. And so for that reason, we don't want to be super guided in our editorial slant because then that's closing our opportunities off to all of this other insight, new frameworks, new details that aren't in at least my personal little bubble. And so where can our audience go find the force distance times and how would they be able to contribute if they wanted to? They can find us, thank you for asking, at forcedistancetimes.com. We have a newsletter too that goes out weekly with a briefing of sorts on news in the previous week and our spin on it, also commentary on the website, and then contributions. There's a submissions page or they can email submissions to submissions at forcedistancetimes.com or just reach out to me personally. And where can they reach out to you? LinkedIn, Twitter? Oh yeah, none of those things. They can reach out to me on the Forest Distance Times Twitter account as well. Okay, <laughs> cool. And what about you? First, I want to, it seems like you've had a pretty interesting career. How'd you get to where you got to? And then what are like, what's at the top of your mind? What's next? You sound like my mother. What's next for me? <laughs> Sometimes she sits me down. I hope she never listens to this. And she's like, where do you see yourself in five years? Is she not proud of you? I think she's very worried about where I see myself in five years. Okay, and? I have what no you idea. Respond? You don't know. <laughs> I say, I have no idea. And she said, you should really have a plan. And I say, I'm not great at planning. I think like I'm very ideologically focused. Originally, it was like, it's funny because I mean, I talked earlier, like in your first question about the shift in attitudes towards China, and then comparing it to the shift in attitudes towards industry. And I think that's me projecting my own personal experience. I was very radicalized on the subject of China's trying to take over the world, which I think it is. And the threat is way much more severe than the US realizes. And then the more I spent time staring at that, the more I was like, wow, what we need is domestic industry. And that actually answers the China problem, but a lot of other ones too. Which is a long way of saying I have no idea to my mother's question, but I'd like it to be something that is productive in terms of bringing about what to my mind is necessary and useful change. Emily de la Bruyere, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you for having me. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.